Yeah, you want to uh, you want to play the music? Okay, and we are back on the Pizza Podcast today. We have a really, really special guest, Francesco Migoya. He is the head chef uh, at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of the Modernist Bread and some new books that are coming out. He is one of the most knowledgeable guys in the industry. Modernist Bread and uh, Modernist Cuisine, their original book, uh, to me, are like, uh, you know, the standard. They're the Bible when it comes to all things like this. Nobody has ever been so comprehensive in their, um, you know, in, in any book that I've ever seen, they they've been through. What is it, uh, Francisco? How many books did you guys go through to uh, to get the uh, for the uh, for modernist spread? It was close to three hundred red books. Okay, three. Yeah, I mean that's that's insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got your I was lucky enough to be one of the guys who, um, uh, you know, received a copy pretty early on. And I got to say, it has, uh, you know, com- like taken me to a brand new level in my craft. And um, it's I mean, it, it, one of my favorite parts about it is that you guys like you guys did like the pictures and everything where it's just like, OK, this is what happens when we did this. This is what happens when we did mm-hmm. that. Right. And it it gives you such a clear understanding in your head of like, you know, when you're trying to do different things, what you're going towards. And I mean, I could talk all day about the book, but um, where I really want to start is uh, let's get to know you a little bit. So where'd you grow up? Sure. Who's Francisco? Uh, mm-hmm. How'd you get into this crazy game of ours? Right. Yeah. Uh, so I've I was born and raised in Mexico City um, and. It was like a very multicultural background where uh, my mom is from. She was born in Brooklyn. She's Italian American, born in Brooklyn. Uh, she went to Mexico to go on like a teacher exchange program, uh, and that's where she met my dad. My dad is. He was born in Spain when he was very young. He, him, and his entire family moved to uh, to Mexico. It was right after the Spanish Civil War, um, so a while ago. Um, and so they met there, married there, and uh, I was there. I studied gastronomy there. I studied cooking in Mexico um, for about a year. And during my professional cooking studies, I studied in France, um, which was extremely formative. It was like a real like boot camp, but a year long boot camp on you know classic French cuisine and. Um, after that, I, I've, you know, I worked in a couple of places, but I moved to New York City in 1998 um, to start working in restaurants. And so I've been living in the U.S. since then, worked in a bunch of restaurants, uh, including the French Laundry in California, where I was the executive pastry chef and Bouchon Bakery. Um, but eventually I started teaching at the Culinary Institute of America in New York, and I taught there for about nine years um before moving here to seattle where i'm i've been the head chef for modernist cuisine since um 2014 so we're going on seven and a half years almost uh in this time we've uh you know i've been part of the the modernist bread book and our newest uh book that's coming out this fall that is on pizza modernist pizza so uh keeping busy here writing books Uh, amazing amazing so what um when you guys started, uh, 
you know, I, I guess like my understanding of modernist, um, as a company is that, uh, you know, Nathan, uh, had a big interest in food and he decided to, um, uh, he decided to start this, you know, thing, exploring all the sciences behind food and do this amazing photography and, and do this amazing mm -hmm. book. Can you give me like a little summary of how that all started? Cause I think my story's like a little wrong. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. Uh, so he basically Nathan has always had an interest in food and his first experience cooking was at the age of nine, where he decided he was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, whether it was good or bad is up for interpretation, but you know, he cooked a full meal at nine years old. Uh, so that's where it all started for him. Um, but he, like his background is tech amongst many things. He has like two PhDs and I don't know how many master's degrees, but he's always had a fondness for cooking and for food, uh, a really deep passion for it. And so, uh, I don't know exactly what the year was, but when he was working at Microsoft, he was a chief technology officer mm. at Microsoft for many years. And, uh, after they launched windows 95, he was uh, looking for some time off for himself. And so he took a sabbatical year and went to study in France, uh, a cooking school there. And, um, you know, this is like a, a about a 40 year old man, you know, leaving his job for a year to go study cooking. Um, Strange. and so after that, yeah, I mean, unusual for sure, but I mean, I guess if you can do it, right. Um, yeah, sure. so, but many years later, he left Microsoft, he opened his, uh, or started his own company. It's called intellectual ventures. And, um, you know, it, it was this thing that started with like an induction burner and it just started like modernist cuisine started as just an induction burner in the, the lab they had. And then it just started growing and growing until its own entity, which is now modernist cuisine. I mean, our kitchen is, we have a video somewhere that on YouTube on our modernist cuisine page that you can see it's a, it's a beautiful kitchen. We, we get to do a bunch of stuff here that, uh, you know, I know I realize how fortunate we are because we have, really great equipment it's a it's a modular space so basically what that means is that we adapt to whatever project we're working on so like for example for our bread book we had a set of ovens that were for bread mm -hmm. now that we worked on pizza we had to like rotate some of that stuff out move things around and install pizza ovens we're going on to a different book next and for that we're going to have to move some things around too and so it's a very adaptable space that we have here it's a pretty large kitchen um, and so, you know, as, as we work on projects is, is, is the, basically how we adapt to it. So, right. Uh, so that's where it started. I mean, they've been, their first book was, as you mentioned, Marinus Cuisine. I was not here for that project. It was the, the first book. It came out in 2011, you know, five volumes on the science of cooking. Um, and after that, they came out with a, an, an at home version of that book. And, um, I joined after that to get working immediately as I started on the modern spread series of books. So that was in 2014. How did that, uh, how did that whole process like kind of go down? Like, um, you know, what was like the kind of philosophy going into it? What were the goals and like, kind of, how did you guys go about, um, cause I think you guys, uh, definitely achieve your goals. <laughs> I don't know what they started yeah. out to be, but, uh, the book is incredible, but, uh, yeah. How do you even start doing something like that? 
Well, you know, it was, it's, it's very organic, mostly because, for example, when I first interviewed for this position and I had my first conversation with Nathan, after having taught bread for, you know, I taught bread amongst many other things at the Culinary Institute of America, including pastry and chocolate, et cetera. So um, you, knowing what I knew about bread, I thought, you know, we're going to write a book about bread. It's probably going to be one volume, you know, 450 pages maximum, right? right. Um, and But as we started, as we started to organize the outline and we started to get information and we started to read books and we started to travel and visit bakeries and talk to people, we realized that this was going to be a much larger project. And so it went to two volumes and then in three, four and five, and it was going to be six. And it wasn't six because we ran out. There's this thing that happens when you have a certain size of book that shipping becomes exponentially more expensive, uh, you know, and to print and to publish. And so we had to cut it at, right. at five volumes. Um, and, you know, it, what it meant is like I had to cut a bunch of recipes out and, you know, they're going to be used for other projects, but it, it had to be trimmed down. So basically where we come from is we want to almost act like translators, right? Because the language of science can be complicated, even for the smartest people. If, if you're not a scientist, you start reading academic papers, you start reading like really dense books, it could be confusing or you don't know what they're talking about. It's like there, it's, it is really kind of like a, a different language. So I'd like to think of us as translators in which we don't dumb it down, but we explain things in a way that everybody can understand um, because it's, it's, it doesn't require, you shouldn't require a science degree to be able to understand some of the science that is out there, right? I mean, you sure. should be able to, any normal per person should be able to have access to that. And there is a lot of information that exists in academic papers. Uh, most of the research that ha happens at that really high level is for like the large mills, the large, you know, bread manufacturers. So the reason they could, because they can fund that research, right. Mm -hmm. But it's research for things like how to extend the shelf life of bread, how to, uh, you know, mix faster. Like it's all for making things more efficient and cheaper, right? That's what industry wants to do. But the thing is that in a lot of this, a lot of these documents, there's, if you know how to read them, you can get a lot of bits of information that can be applied for everyday bakers. And so we, we sifted through a bunch of paper, paper so to speak. Uh, we sifted through a lot of that, that data to get to, you know, what is it about the world of bread that people need to understand? So it's a very pedagogical um, approach that we take with it. With bread, as with a lot of cooking, there's a lot of myths out there simply because bread has been part of the history of humanity for millennia, right? And so if you have something that is, is that old, that is tied into like our ancestors that were still living in, in caves, because there is some proof that there were, uh, you know, 14,000 years ago, there's these caves in Mozambique where they were grinding sorghum. Like, what do you use ground sorghum for? You don't just eat it like that. You mix it with water and you make something. It's either going to be beer or fermented drink, or it's going to be a flatbread, right? So right. Uh, that's how that's how long of, of evidence that we have for people starting to eat bread. So again, something that, you know, it wasn't until like 150 years ago that we began to understand that it was microorganisms that were responsible for fermenting before it was like an act of magic, right? If you don't know what's happening and it starts to bubble, it's like, it could be like this divine intervention thing, right? That it, but it's all microorganisms. And so, it, you know, you have something that is, it, that has that sort of like lore and that sort of tradition, there's going to be a lot of stuff about it that is not completely true. 
Um, and so we wanted to sift through what that was and we wanted to bring the information. Like the idea is that our books are the only book that you need to get, right? Uh, that is, you know, instead of buying 300 books about bread, you just get the one because it has everything that you need to know about it. And also because most, you think if you look at most bread books or even pizza books, it's about one type of bread or one style of bread or one right. style of pizza. It's one person's journey uh, down that, right. into that craft right. usually, yeah. Which is valid. I mean, I don't want to discount that at all. I mean, when you become really good at something, you write a book about it, there's huge value in that. 100%. Um, uh, but also, there's also value in, in trying to be as all-encompassing as possible to provide as much information as possible. No, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I am a big... <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Tartine Bread, Chad Robertson's book and this and sure. that. But, but Tartine is taking you down Chad's specific journey. Um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't leave like a lot of room for, um, you know, kind of really understanding in a much deeper level um, what is going right. on and how to make changes, which, you, uh, you know, your guys book obviously does a great thing about. I tell guys, uh, I tell guys all the time, uh, you know, they're like, because people have it in their head, like just they have it in their head that a slice of pizza costs this in New York. They have it in their head that a book costs that. And I'm like, right. You got to look at this a little bit differently. It's it's you're not buying one book. You're buying 300 books. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So, right. um, and this is this is going to be a resource that you're going to be able to use, uh, you know, forever. Um, back to that. Uh, you were you were talking about the mystical properties of bread. Um, back mm. in the day, like I, I remember probably it's probably got to be 10 years ago. I was on the Internet and some weird website came up that was written by, you know, some, some woman and it was kind of explaining, um, you know, how, uh, bread and, uh, uh, natural Levon is, uh, you know, like the body of Christ and that the reason why like they had body of Christ and blood of Christ be wine and bread is because like you were saying, like they saw it as this mystical thing where it's like, you could have a starter culture, no matter where you are, it mm -hmm. becomes alive, creates this delicious thing. Um, you know, I, I always found that really interesting. And recently one of the, one of the things that, uh, I always wondered, you know, why the Roman, uh, Catholic church gave out, uh, unleavened bread instead of leavened bread. Mm -hmm. And I recently found out, um, that they had given they that the Roman Catholic Church was giving leavened bread to their um you know uh to their <laughs> trying Faithful. to say customers <laughs> yeah <laughs> to the <laughs> whatever the word is um yeah. and that during the schism between the East and the West churches um they were trying to do everything they can to differentiate themselves so if you walk into like a Greek Orthodox church they actually mm -hmm. still to this day give leavened bread <laughs> and at the Roman Catholic oh, yeah. But, um, and I digress. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying to, so, uh, when he, what kind of places did you guys visit? Um, as far as, uh, you know, what were some of like the most, you know, th that you feel like you got the most out of when you guys were like visiting different bakeries and stuff like that? You know, it's almost a cliche, but I think Paris is, is, is and France in general is a very important country when it comes to bread um i mean some of the reasons are obvious but others are you know the the importance that french culture po puts on bread is is not to be undermined because if you go to paris you're going to 
have a bakery almost every block. Mm -hmm. So that means that there is enough of a market for each one of those bakeries to stay in business because it's supported by the, the, the customer base that is within walking distance. And bread is something that is purchased maybe up to two times a day, maybe three times a day. Um, so the, the culture of, of bread is, is it's huge there. It's very different here in the U.S. where we're trying to avoid bread and gluten and carbs and so on and so forth. Uh, but I, to go back to your question, I think France had a, has a very important place in the realm of bread. Now, if you think about, if you look at any artisan bakery around the world, it's going to look pretty much like most bakeries in Paris, right? By this, I mean, you're going to have more or less the same types of breads. You're going to have a baguette in, you know, Shanghai or Sao Paulo or Mexico City. A baguette is going to be a baguette. They might have some differences here and there, but you're going to have a baguette. You're going to have a sourdough bread. You're going to have a country loaf. You're going to have ciabatta. Again, it's usually, it's not as, as specific as like the gastronomy of a country because hmm. you go to those countries and they all have a separate gastronomy, but the influence of French artisan bread is, is massive, right? Uh, there, there's, you really don't have to go to Korea to go see how they make artisan bread because it's very similar to what is done in San Francisco or New York or Paris, right? I mean, these are, there's a lot of similarities. And this is not to say that specific countries have special breads. Like you go to Japan, they have like these very fluffy white breads, super soft breads. Yeah, the milk uh, ones, that are, right? Milk. The milk breads, but, yeah. but they use the, the milk bread. And so, but they use that type of dough to make a bunch of different pastries and so on and so forth. But you also go to a, an artisan bakery in Tokyo and you're going to see probably even, you know, more because they really know how to perfect things in, mm. in Tokyo, right? And so you take a baguette and they're going to make a perfect baguette, the perfect sourdough and so on and so forth. Um, so, and within that, I think that the most important bakery that we went to in Paris is a bakery called Poilan, and that's spelled P-O-I-L-A-N-E. Um, because this guy, Lionel Poilan, he basically, after World War II, bread started to become pretty terrible in France because it was starting to become mass produced. And so it was, it was starting to take a decline in quality. And so this, this baker, Lionel Poilan, uh, coined this term like retro innovation, which was like his innovation was to go back to how bread was being made before the World War. Um, and so he started making his, his famous country loaf. And so that you may have seen it as these large loaves of bread. It has the letter P like scored on the front of it. It's his name. Yeah. I think um, his daughter recently, um, yeah. came out with a masterclass on that masterclass.com. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't so, remember her name off the top of my head, but yeah, I watched, uh, most of it. Her, her name is Apollonia and yes. she is, she has a really interesting story because her father, Lionel, died in a helicopter accident when she was 18 years old. Oh, Jesus. Um, and she was actually studying in Harvard at the time. And so she basically had to take over the business at the age of 18, right? Um, and, you know, kudos to her because till this day, this is like, this was like 15 years ago, she's really uh, managed to, you know, keep it up and to actually make it, uh, to expand it uh, to where it is today, which is, Probably the most important bakery uh, in the, uh, to me personally, I think it's the most important bakery in the world. Um, and it's, it still has, it's in its original place. If you ever go to Paris, you must, must go because it's just, it's an absolutely beautiful bakery. But um, that is to say, you know, like what influences what? I think that that 
you know, what this bakery did and how they influenced uh, uh, the bread today is it's not talked about enough. And that's how it happens, right? It's like we, we have a short attention span and we like, who's next? Who's the next great baker? Who's the next great pizza maker? Like, right. we want to know, like, who's no, no. But, you know, props need to be given to people like her. A hundred percent. And when, did you guys go over there and spend some time with her? Yeah. Yeah. And she's a, a great, like, I would say, friend of modernist cuisine where okay. like she she wrote uh she we translated our book into french and so she did all the revisions to our book to make sure that you know the information was correct she wrote the foreword to our book um so it, it's you know it, it's it's somebody who is is really a valuable friendship for us to have how sure. how long would uh how long did you guys spend over there? Like a few weeks or something? Were you invited into the kitchen with open arms? Like, what was that process like? Uh, so it was, it was on and off. And Nathan went on a lot of those trips too. He went with a gentleman called, uh, his name is Stephen Kaplan, who is an American who lives in Paris, who is a bread historian. Okay. Um, and so there was a lot of bakeries that were visited with him because this guy, I mean, it, it's worth also looking into his books because he, he wrote about the history of bread in France. Uh, so he's he's like a wealth of knowledge. He was a professor at Columbia in New York, um, who, and he now has been residing in Paris for decades, but he's an expert on the, on the subject. And so there was a lot of, of visiting the bakeries, getting information from the bakers. Some bakers don't want to share as much information that it happens, you know, like, right. uh, you know, people have their trade secrets. So, you know, whenever somebody wants to share, we're grateful for it. And if not, that's also fine. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, this is how they make their bread specifically and they, they don't want to share with the world. And that's, that is completely understandable. Mm. So we traveled a lot more for pizza. And, and the reason why we travel a lot more for pizza is because there are a lot more different styles of pizza around the world than there are styles of bread. Um, you know, and, and that's, you have to go specifically to those places to learn them because if I'm thinking of, for example, in Buenos Aires, they have a very specific type of pizza. It's a very thick crust. It's got so much cheese on it. You won't believe it. I mean, you cut a slice and the cheese just, it's, it hides the slice. That's not a pizza that's done anywhere else but there. So you have to go there and see it. Um, and you have to learn from it and, you know, go to the, you know, as many of the pizzerias that are renowned as you possibly can talk to as many people as you can. And, and that, like I said, that was more necessary for, for the pizza research than it was for the bread research. Is, is there any, um, uh, I mean, obviously you already knew a lot about bread. You were teaching bread and, um, mm -hmm. and, and for students for many years, um, when writing this book, um, when it comes to techniques and, you know, everything from like, uh, pre-ferments and this and that, and was there any like, kind of like aha moments that like you discovered mm -hmm. personally for yourself that, you know what I mean? You, you were surprised. Yeah. At? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, there was a lot of like really understanding how a sourdough starter works. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, and, and how to maintain it and how to coax the flavors that you want out of it, which are, are things you can't really do. And again, this is what I think is the value of our boats. And I'm not trying to like sell them or anything, but I think the, the value is that when you're a baker or a pizzaiolo or a cook or a chef, do you have time to do research? Do you have time to do experiments? Do you have, 
you know, like it, it's the sort of thing that you might have every now and then a moment to try something out. But what we do is that's what we, that's our job. Our job is to basically test things and to tell you, look, this works, this doesn't work very well, or this works a little bit better and so on and so forth. So uh, for me, it was important to understand, look, I like sourdough breads, but I don't like them to be too sour. So what do I do? How do I do that? Um, like, how do I, how do I adapt my sourdough starter to that? Uh, we were able to develop things like, uh, let's say a sourdough starter that we, uh, we feed with a little bit of sugar so that it can become osmo tolerant. So I can use it for panettone, right. And so I can have a panettone that ferments in half the time. Mm. Um, there were other things that we did, like, you know, developing a, a method for making hundred percent whole wheat bread, but with a very large crumb structure. If you've ever worked with whole wheat before, it's, it's dense, yeah. it's, you know, it really makes for a dense bread, but imagine having a whole wheat dough either for pizza or for a sourdough that can have a nice light crumb and not be this heavy, like, you know, dense bread. So, right. um, those were important findings, I think. And also, you know, things that I, I would think about, like, does New York city water really make the best bagel? And, you know, you can either take New Yorkers word for it, or you can just try it out and find out whether it's true or not. Um, and so testing something like that is, is, it's important to do in a very like scientific way and scientific approach so that when I say the water in New York city does not matter to make the bagel, I can tell you why, and I can give you receipts for why that is not a true statement. Right. right. And so those are important things that, that we do and we research here. And, you know, at the end of the day, when people, if people don't want to believe something, at least we try, right. There's going to be people who will read how we did our experiment, how we carried it out, if people don't want to hear it, that, you know, you can make a perfectly good bagel in Scottsdale, Arizona. They don't want to hear it. It's, okay. It's I mean, that's fine. The number but. one question that I get um, from people once they find out that I'm like a pizzaiolo, it's like, oh, it's the water, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like, and then I got to explain to them, no. And like, you know, mm -hmm. many, many years ago, like probably like 12 years ago, we did this thing um, where we sent this guy from Bad Boy Pizza around the country to make his dough in different areas mm -hmm. around the country and it was it was more or less the same wherever he went you know what i'm saying and i think right. i think there's so, i mean there's got to be something to like if you're using like um heavily leaded uh water sure. from flint michigan <laughs> or something like that but if you throw it through right. a filter and you know clean right. it up it's gonna you know um have for sure some kind of effect yeah, I mean, I know starters and hydration are something that like uh, people are talking about all the time. More and more mm -hmm. um, in recent years, I've been seeing a lot of chefs um, getting into the bread baking world, taking it really mm -hmm. seriously, um, digesting a lot of books. And I, I think the way like that a lot of these books read is um, that they're almost reading like, you know, hydration is uh makes a better bread the more hydration you have the better it's going to be to the point where i'll go over to these guys restaurants and they're like they're like oh i made a 110 percent hydrated dough and i'm like oh okay right. uh that's cool and they're, right. they're trying to push that envelope um ha have you seen any of that and like what, what are your feelings about that on hydration i've always said it's relative to fermentation and it's relative to different effects yeah. you want but well, I have strong feelings about it, mostly because, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, hydration, uh, what 
what it contributes to, what it can contribute to in a, in a positive aspect is that when there's more water in a dough, there will be more fermentation activity. So it's like you're, you're giving the yeast and the, the bacteria that are in there more of a chance to do their work. Um, the, what I don't agree with is that it makes a better bread because it's uh, better for who, right? I mean, if, if I'm making these like sourdough breads and they have these like giant holes and I'm trying to make a sandwich with it, is that going to be a good sandwich or am I going to have mayonnaise right. and, you know, feeling like just dripping all over the place. Yeah. Right. Which is um, what happens. And so, <laughs> which is what tends to happen. Yeah. And so is, is it, am I giving my customers a loaf of bread or am I giving them mostly holes of air? Right. I mean, I, I don't, it looks cool and it became this huge thing on Instagram to show your crumb. And it's like, if you had a small crumb, don't even show it. It's embarrassing. Right. Sure. Uh, but then, you know, you have people like with the oven and they're like, look, it's like, you do a search for it and there's like all of these breakers just like look at my crumb. Right. Um, and that the thing is like, that's one bread. That is one type of bread. There are so many other types of bread that are delicious and they all have a different purpose. Right. Um, I think of, for example, if I had to eat a, a BLT, which is probably my favorite sandwich, if I have to eat that with the sourdough, is that good? No, it's not. You need to get the whitest, softest bread to make proper BLT, I think. Same goes for a hamburger bun. I don't want to have a brioche bun. I want to have a, a, a my, the trashiest white bun possible <laughs> to make a hamburger because that, yeah. that is what I like to have in a hamburger. So we don't need to refine everything. We don't need to have a giant crumb for everything. Um, and also, you know, this brings me to, you know, I don't think like we shouldn't be the people that say this bread is good and this bread is bad. You know, that that's one of the things that that I really want to make sure that we would never judge somebody who says, I like the whitest, softest bread. Fine. Here's a recipe. Um, but and then there's people who want like the densest rye bread. We also have that recipe. Right. And when we start to give opinions about things and uh, whether it's good or bad unless it's like really bad for your health, you're really not going to make that call. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what about going back well, to your point about, well, what about when it comes to like, uh, you know, if somebody walks into like a fine dining restaurant and they ask for the steak, well done with ketchup, is there any like things that like analogy to that? Like, or is that fine too? Well, you know, the thing is like you, like, why would you want to impose your beliefs and your taste on somebody else? Right. I mean, we're just, the everybody has their own unique set of likes and dislikes. I mean, I think that what is important as like a baker or a pizzaiolo or a restaurateur is that you make food that most people will like. Okay. You, not everybody's going to like it. And, and every restaurant I used to work at, every restaurant I worked at in New York City, uh, it would there was always a guest who would ask for the well done steak with ketchup and a side salad. But they would spend like hundreds of dollars on bottled wine. Yeah, you made it. So, right. And so who is like, you know, this person is going to like that. Why are you going to tell them, no, you're not going to like that. We're going to make it like this. I mean, like that's as much as I don't a hundred percent agree on the customers always. Right. Because they, they're not always right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's where it comes to bread. It's like, you know, you like the softest, squishiest bread. It has its place. You know, is there any, um, you mentioned like health, um, is there, mm -hmm. there, there anything when it comes to like, uh, types of flowers you use or, um, sure. types of fermentation you use that, that could affect the bread, like in a healthy or unhealthy way at all? Yeah. So, you know, the, 
something that, that we really did a lot of research on was the health aspects of bread, okay. right? Because it's, there's a lot of interest in that. Um, and, you know, one of the claims that we really uh, had a lot of, I guess, uh, conflicting information on was like the, the new, how nutritional a, or, or how healthy like whole wheat bread is versus white bread. Sure. Um, and the most important thing for me to explain and to, to just not dive too far into it is that, for example, uh, if you think of what makes whole wheat flour, whole wheat is that it has a bran in the germ. Uh, which is, it means like it has the whole grain of wheat is in there, including all its parts, the endosperm, the bran and germ. Um, the problem with bran and germ is that bran and germ are what I call water loving. And so they'll, they'll, they'll absorb water from the dough, but they'll hold on to it. They just do not let it go. And they also get in the way of gluten development. So it's a bummer, like bran and germ are a bummer on the dough. Um, but if you feel, if you read enough articles that say, no, you have to eat whole wheat bread. And so you're like, okay, I'll eat whole wheat bread because it's healthier for me. You can stop doing that now because whole wheat does not contribute any nutrients whatsoever to your body. What bran and germ do is they, I don't want to get into too much detail, but they pass right through you. So if you're eating them for fiber purposes, that's fine. But if you're eating it for nutritional purposes, you're not, it's not an accurate statement. Um, there's a, a white loaf of bread, like a, a white sourdough, for example, will have, will contribute as much nutrition, if not more than the whole wheat bread. Why? Because bran and germ, while they're getting flushed out of your system, they also take stuff from you and they take good stuff from you. So whatever they may contribute, the micronutrients that they might contribute, are minimal and negligible. You get more nutrients if you eat an apple than if you eat a slice of bread. Now, you shouldn't really eat bread for 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 any purpose, but for you know to satisfy your hunger or to uh, uh, you know for you know for your meal or what have you. Bread isn't. I don't think of it as a food that I would eat to improve my health. Right. Um, I, I would think of like eating you know fruits and vegetables as a way to improve the nutrition and my health. But bread. It's not something that I would say, you know, eat it so that you can get healthier or stronger. Sure. If you need carbs before a race, then maybe, right? I mean, right. but 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 as far as like, okay, this is healthier, you should probably look elsewhere. But it does seem that breads that are fermented with sourdough starters seem to be easier to, um, for people who are diabetic, it has a lower glycemic index. Right. So they're slower to digest. And so they go through your gut a lot slower. And so it's it's... In that case, in those cases, it is a, a smarter choice for you to make than if you get like, you know, the whitest, softest spread, uh, if you're, especially if you're diabetic. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. No, that all makes, um, that all makes a ton of sense. So like when you're, uh, when you're like, when you're fermenting these things, like, do you like, what about like, um, a lot of people I talk about potassium bromate, which is illegal kind mm -hmm. of anywhere, everywhere. And like, um, I don't really mm -hmm. understand what the bleaching process exactly is too. Like, I mean, I picture my like mm -hmm. meatball Brooklyn head of mine, like that, <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. it's like somebody's pouring a bunch of bleach on something, which I know probably isn't the case, but like mm -hmm. when you're buying uh products that are bleached and bromated, um, is that like a, a choice maybe you should stay away from um, as a producer? 
You know, uh, anything well, that's illegal in China must have a problem. <laughs> Uh, so the bromated flowers, they're not very common in the U.S., although it's, it is, I think, the only country where it's still allowed. Wait, not very um, common. I, bromated flower I, I compared to other types of flowers. Well, I can't, I can't find it. Be, I'd be hard-pressed to find you a bakery or pizzeria in New York City that doesn't use bromated flour. Mm. Vast, vast majority. So, in New York, New Jersey, right. Long Island, and everywhere else I know use bromated flour. Uh, but the the question is like, is bromated flour and bleached flour like what are the, the issues with it? Yeah. And I think that the biggest concern people may have about it, whether it's like, am I eating bleach or am I eating potassium bromate? These are additives that are utilized during the process, but they eventually kind of dissipate, right? Okay. So if if I think about bleached flour. Uh, it is a, a process that is used to accelerate the whitening of flour. It's not really necessary, but it's a, a process in which some bleach, a minimal amount is added to the flour to make it whiter faster because it'll, it can get white, uh, you know, eventually with time, but mills that produce like tons and tons of flour need to move their inventory out. And so that's a process that is done for it. Um, it does change the nature of the flour slightly. So you know, this is if somebody wants to do this experiment, if they make their pizza dough with, you know, bromated flour or bleached flour, and then they make another dough with unbleached, unbromated flour, they can see the difference. There is going to be a difference in how it, it acts. But what you don't need to worry terribly about is, you know, health wise is it's it. There's a pro, there's a point in which those additives basically dissipate from the flour and they're not through, like actively. It's not like you're eating bleach. Well, through time, because some of these chemicals just kind of like dissipate into the air um, okay. and and also uh, through the process of like mixing and kneading and cooking. Uh, it's also why you should probably not eat raw dough. Right. But it, it's the amounts are so minimal and so small that there's, it's not going to kill you. I mean, if you read the amount of things that you can get away with putting in food like if seriously it's it's kind of funny like if in a bag of flour the fda allows like x amount of rat droppings right x amount of rat of rat hair mm -hmm. and it allows it it allows it because you can tolerate it doesn't mean it's right what it means is that right. your body can handle it I, as disgusting as it may be i recently started um, putting on like a painter's mask and and sifting all my flour in my little laboratory and i'm constantly finding rat droppings no matter what kind of flour i use like it's it's, right. it's pretty gross yeah <laughs> well, well uh if anybody's getting ready to eat dinner right now uh some nice information <laughs> um yeah so uh let's go to like uh, i want to talk about starters a little bit so you were mentioning before sure. that like sugar uh you were adding sugar to a starter culture mm -hmm. to get um some sort of beneficial effect from your panettone dough mm -hmm. now like when you incorporate a sugar into your starter is that something you have to do for like three to seven days to like kind of change what's going yeah. on with the microorganisms so that they could you know use that or yeah yeah science it, you know yeast and the the bacteria that exist in a starter are extremely adaptable organisms they they're they you introduce sugar into the environment and that's what we do you start with one percent the next day you do two percent three and four up until you can get as equalize it to the amount of sugar that's going to be in your actual dough so that it's comfortable in that environment but 
if you don't, sugar is a bit of a hostile environment for yeast. It creates uh, what is called osmotic pressure. To give you an example of something extreme that has a very high osmotic pressure is honey. Uh, so right. honey will last forever right? because it doesn't allow the entrance of bacteria. It binds all the water that is in there to itself and bacteria has no access to it. Um, and so that's why you can have honey, like if, you know, from ancient Egypt and it'll still be fine to eat, uh, because of the highest amount of pressure. So a sourdough starter that is mixed into like a panettone dough is a very small example of what, what that sugar is doing. Salt is the same way. Salt creates, it's a hostile environment for dough, but it's necessary for flavor. You use it to slow fermentation down, um, and so forth. So, uh, with sugar, what we're doing is. We're, we're, we're creating, we're getting the yeast to be what is called osmotolerant. That, is mean, that means that it's going to be tolerant to osmosis. Um, and if you, some yeast manufacturers like SAF, uh, they make, you know, your regular red yeast bag, and then they have the gold yeasts, which are just color coded. But the red yeast is just for lean doughs, meaning doughs that have no fat. And then the gold yeast that they have is called osmotolerant yeast, which means that it's going to be for sweet doughs, uh that so like for brioche for panettone right right so what they did is what we're doing with the sourdough starter which is they they basically developed their yeast to adapt to uh to be comfortable in a high sugar environment so you can do that too um so, so and, it's almost and it, like when you're you it's almost like when you're um you know, if you're trying to make a starter uh, to start a wine, you wanted to get used to those mm -hmm. grapes. And you, what you're doing is you're making a starter that has a, a sugar inclusion so that the yeast mm -hmm. in there um, uh, will be able to eat that and digest that better than starches. So it'll be able to ferment the dough and create carbon dioxide better. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So, so the yeah. microorganisms, yeah. If, if you like buy, if you buy a bunch of grapes, mostly like, let's say organic grapes, or like blueberries, you're going to see that they have like a white dusting on the surface. Um, right. And that that is yeast. And basically that's yeast that is just sitting there waiting for that grape to start to spoil. Because the moment that grape starts to spoil, the skin is going to rupture. And that's when the yeast can get in there and start eating all those sugars that are in there. Um, so, the, and I need to be clear here, the, the yeast that lives on that grape and that the, the bacteria that lives on that grape is not the same as the yeast and bacteria that live on the surface of a wheat berry. 100%. Okay? Yeah. I, yeah. So they're, they're different strains that have to, adapted to, to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I'm it saying is, because, is that you're mm -hmm. adapting these strains to work in a sugar dough by adding sugar to it. Like right. in the same way that like you wouldn't want to use a bread starter to uh, uh, to create alcohol and fermenting like uh, grape juice. Correct. You would take mm -hmm. grape juice ferment that feed right. that sugar so that it's adapted right. to work in that environment and is that it's best to keep same with same it is yeah. best i mean although you could use like there's some people that like to use raisins in their starter mm -hmm. and that's because it really what you're doing when you're adding raisins to a starter is you're giving the starter uh what i call substrates or food really that's the simplest way to put it and so you're going to get a sourdough starter that's going to start fermenting really, really fast. Okay. It's not sustainable because in order for you to get that raisin water, you have to take raisins, submerge them in water, keep them in that water for like five or six days. And then you use that water to feed your starter, which is fine to do every now and then, but it's not sustainable as far as like the cost of grapes versus the cost of flour is very different. 
it's not something that you can't be like soaking raisins every day and then throwing them out just to feed your starter. Oh. The best thing you can do is just water and flour. Period. So, so it's not that like, I mean, I, w- I was, I was thinking that like, if you were to make, if you were to do that raisin starter dough, then, that, then wouldn't the yeast have a harder time? Like, uh, or the bacterium and the yeast have a harder time digesting the starches, like because they're not, they're made to like no. eat sugar now. Okay, yeah. So, let's go down that you know, road because this is really right. yeah. <laughs> sure. So, like one of the very, I think, very interesting experiments that we did was that we took we because we tested this whole raisin theory, uh, in which we took we took raisins in water and we inoculated the water with the raisins for like five. By inoculated, I mean it's like you submerge them in the water. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is that water is a, it creates an environment for that yeast to basically be able to, but to create more, more, uh, microorganisms to create more yeast, right? So it's, you're, you're creating this water is like a Petri dish. And so you take that water and you mix it with flour and then you have a starter that's going to start getting active pretty quickly. That's, that's the theory behind it. So we did that, that we took the same raisins with water. Uh, you know, for the same amount of time, but then we took that liquid and we pressure cooked it. And the reason why we pressure cooked it was so that we could kill any sort of living thing that is in there. When you pressure cook things, there's no way that anything is going to survive that, right? It's, that's why foods are canned and they're preserved because you're killing all the microorganisms. Right. Um, and so we did a side by side with that. And it turns out that the one that we put in the pressure cooker fermented a lot faster more vigorously than the, the regular raisins that were inoculated. And the theory behind that is because when we did that, what we did is we helped break down the sugars even further that were in the raisins. And that that became food for the yeast, right? Because sugar is sugar, right? Okay. I mean, that's once the sugar is available, the yeast is going to eat it. The, the issue the yeast has is breaking whatever it is down to turn it into a single sugar chain. That is what they eat. Right. That's why uh, if you think of starch, starch in and of itself is is a chain of sugars. Yes. But the yeast that goes in there is specialized into breaking those chains down, those polysaccharides down into simple sugars so that it can then consume it. Right. Right. So if you're already giving it broken down sugar chains, the yeast is really going to go to town. So this is to say, sure, you can do a, a raisin starter. It's a bit of a waste of money. It's not going to kill the bread. It's not going to jump out of the oven, but it's not necessary to create a, a, a healthy yeast environment. What if you, what if you were to, do you think you would get similar results as um, if you were to like pressure cook granulated sugar or something like that? Cause wouldn't that break? Possibly. It down? Yeah. It almost, Possibly. in fact, it almost sounds like that Ted Ed video that I uh, I think I sent it to you about carbohydrates, where it was showing how uh, sugar. I did not get oh, it. You didn't watch it. Uh, it basically it's like what a carbohydrates do in your body, and it's like a little picture graphic of like, okay, when you drink sugar uh, or when you uh, drink a soda, those molecules will be able to cleave right away in your small intestines mm-hmm. with the microbes in there right. and get converted into sugar. Where if you eat mm-hmm. a, um, uh, broccoli even though the broccoli has um, a lot of starches, they're like more, I guess, resistant starches because they're surrounded mm-hmm. by fibers and different mm-hmm. chains, um, molecular chains that are not as easily cleaved and converted into uh, sugar, usable sugar for your body. It almost, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know it's a different thing, but it sounds like something very similar is happening. 
Yeah, I mean, it's basically breaking down, you know, however long it takes the microorganism to break down those sugar chains to something to eat. Yeah, and to, you know, it's it's going to change. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So one of the, one of the, I I believe, I want to, I'm 90% sure you told me this. um, And it it sounded like a little spooky when you explained it, but I believe you're explaining something to me about, um, on a, at a different time about how, um, you know, based on the rate that you feed your starter, the starter will, mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, three to seven days or whatever, will kind of adapt to that feeding schedule. It, like almost sounded yeah. a little spooky to me where you were like, <laughs> you know, it's like, how is it learning? It's like, you know. Well, it's uh, the, you know, with these microorganisms, their, their life cycle is very basic. It is really survival of the fittest. Uh, and, and they're, you know, in their genetic code, they want to survive and they will do everything that they can to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes even learning when they're going to be fed. So if I, this is why it's important for people who want to get serious about, you know, doing their sourdough starters is the first thing is make sure you feed it more or less at the same time every day. Right. Um, and because it'll get used to the yeast will know, okay, I have 24 hours to eat this. And so I'm going to make sure that, you know, I develop, you know, my yeast cells are going to be able to consume this within 24 hours. And I know that there's more coming after that. Right. Right. And it's not like 24 hours on the nose. You can give or take an hour on, on each end. Sure. Uh, But it, but it knows to, that it doesn't need to hurry up. It knows that it needs to stretch it uh, before it gets more. Um, And so the same thing will happen if I feed it every 12 hours, it'll adapt to that you know, and, right. and, and so on and so forth. But very important to really realize that, you know, when we're talking about a, a starter like this with wild yeast, it's almost more important to talk about the, the lactic acid bacteria and the acetic acid bacteria that live in there. And the reason for this is because they outnumber the yeast cells a hundred to one. So if you want to talk about, you know, the influence of flavor in the final product, it's not the yeast, it is the mixture of uh, lactic acid bacteria and acetic acid bacteria that exists in there that influence because there's a lot more varieties of those. When you when we talk about yeast in a sourdough starter, the dominant yeast strain is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's very it's it's exactly the same type of yeast that you get the instant yeast. It's okay. Saccharomyces. That's what it is. It's just in a purified form. What you find in your sourdough starter is about seventy to eighty percent that. There might be one or two more different strains of yeast, but the dominant one is that one. So it doesn't really contribute that much complexity. It contributes some flavor and so on and so forth. But the other microorganisms, the, the lactic acid and acetic acid, there are hundreds of varieties of that. Um, and that is what creates a unique sourdough starter uh, for each person. Like if you and your wife had a sourdough starter and you kept it in a different room in your house, it will eventually be like if it starts the same and you split it up, because of the different environment is in, it's going to become unique to you guys, to each place where it is. Um, now, the whatever exists on the wheat kernel in the field where the wheat is harvested from, that whatever is it, the yeast and the, the bacteria that is covering and coating that wheat, uh, that wheat granule is going to have the most influence on how your, your final bread tastes. But to a moderate degree it's how you feed it if you feed it with your hands what's in the air in your bakery or in your kitchen that does have an influence on it and that's again that is what makes every sourdough starter as unique as possible 
kind of got that. I want to, um, uh, no, no. I mean, this is great information. I think, I think everybody's going to find a lot of value in this. Um, there's a lot of guys, a lot more than I think we think that are into this thing. And like, I mean, hearing you talk like in an unfiltered way definitely gives them, um, a lot to like, you know, study and, and I think a better understanding overall and to gain, you know, a real understanding. So you were talking about these two bacteriums. What, uh, can you say the names of them again? Yeah, so the shortened uh, abbreviation is lab, lab, L-A-B, which is lactic acid bacteria. Okay, um, bacteria. And then, and then acetic, which is like acetic acid, A-C-E-T-I-C, A-C-E-T-I-C acid bacteria, which is, if I think of, of the flavor profile of each one, acetic acid bacteria is very like vinegary. So, and, it, and that's exactly what you would find in like in a balsamic vinegar. That's the, mm -hmm. the, the bacteria that is used in that environment. And lactic acid bacteria is more of an acidity, like what you would find in uh, like dairy, like yogurt, sour yogurt. cream, so forth. So it's a more mellow acid taste that you have there. So there's lactic acid bacteria prefers to be in warmer temperatures and acetic acid bacteria prefers cooler temperatures. Okay. So this is how you, this is how you can influence the outcome of your, the flavor of your, your pizza dough or your bread, which is like, where do you store, store your sourdough starter? Uh, the, in a warmer area, you're going to, you know, have a, you know, stronger presence of lactic acid bacteria In colder, you're going to have a stronger presence of acetic acid bacteria. So, you know, in San Francisco, maybe you like like really acidic bread, like because the bread there is like very acidic. Well, then maybe you keep it in a colder temperature. It really is up to you what your flavor profile is that you want. Now, I personally don't like super sour sourdough starters. So I like to use my, I keep mine in a wine fridge, which I set I to 55 degrees. That. Yeah, I've been yeah. reading things yeah. about that. I think from you, probably right. from you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I keep it there, which is not too cold. It's not too warm. So I have a good mix of both of them. Um, but the other part is that the, I don't wait too long after I mix it to mix it into my dough. Like if I feed my sourdough starter, let's say at seven o'clock in the morning by 11 or so, I'm already mixing it into a dough, right? If I let that go further, if I let it go further, then I, it's going to become more and more acidic. So um, it, it's almost similar to like, um, I, I mean, in Chad Robertson's book, he's got like his mature starter that he mixes in. And then I think he right. goes out of Levon and similar to that almost. Right. Which yeah. Is oh, it's the same thing. It's school. different names. Yeah. It's obviously well, an old it's, school thing that he learned from France somewhere. Right. I mean, he studied, but it's, that is yeah. more, that is actually, um, I would say it's a more correct term because sourdough is a very American thing. And it's called Levon, which means like literally translated as leaven, right. uh, which is it's 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 a leavener. Uh, it's in if you go and have bread in France, they don't like that sourdough profile. I mean, it's it's a it's almost like the bread is bad once it got it gets that sour. But yeah. you go to San Francisco and they've really like these really sour bread. So it's just a matter of personal preference. Um, and you know, sourdough is is a more it's very colloquial. It's more like bakery vernacular where you're, we're calling it the starter the same thing as we're calling the bread, right? So it's right. sourdough, I, I and then it's the, the sourdough bread. I so. hate the word uh, personally. That's why I like said Levon. Right. But like, yeah, because yeah. everybody that I try to explain about what I'm doing with, um, you know, pre-ferments or wild yeast or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, 
Um, cause a lot of people don't understand like on the street, like what Levon is, uh, and they'll be like, Oh, you're doing sourdough. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't like that word. But not really. It implies right. that right. my bread or my pizza is sour, which, um, right. is not the flavor. It's not what you're going for. Going for right. No, correct. Correct. So, um, when do, do you see what, oh, do you see what, um, uh, like a lot of bakeries, do you see them like more um, going towards like, is there guys that kind of go like a hundred percent to cold fermentation and other guys a hundred percent warm, or is it more a mix between the two? I know that like when I got in started traveling around for pizza many years mm -hmm. ago, um, you know, the way that they, you know, they, they, they were telling me things like uh, when I went to Naples, they were like, oh, in order to be real Napoletan on pizza, you can never put the dough in the fridge. It has to be in a wood thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to use uh, buffalo mozzarella because uh, that's the only real mozzarella. Fior de latte is not allowed to right. be called mozzarella by law. Now, all that has mm -hmm. changed. Now, if you go to like a yeah. Neapolitan uh, VPN or one of these classes, they're saying use plastic trays, 100% cold fermentation, um fior de latte is fine um mm -hmm. is, is there things like that in bread and is there um uh you know kind of like what are the pros and cons to like a cold fermentation during a worm fermentation like uh well there i'm i'm pro cold fermentation okay in in bread and in pizza uh because you know the first thing is that if you are able to cold ferment you're going to be able to have a life um, and this means that you're not subject to whatever room temperature you have, which will fluctuate your dough. It means that sometimes you might be having to mix dough at midnight so that it's ready the next day. If you have cold fermentation, you control the yeasts. Mm. Um, and so that allows you to plan ahead. It allows you to have a dough that is manageable, right? If I, in the realm of bread, if I cold ferment a dough, um, I can, it's really interesting. It bakes differently, but really nicely. Like it's first and foremost, it's easier to score to make the cut on a cold dough than on a soft, bubbly, gassy dough. dough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. hundred percent. So you get a cleaner cut. I mean, it's partially aesthetic, the whole, you know, getting the clean cut, getting the but it also means, that. yeah, Got right. It. Sorry. But it, what matters is like, if I'm getting a clean cut, why do I score dough? I score it because I'm, trying to give the steam a control path exit path right instead of letting the the dough just like expand and rip apart i'm telling you know the the steam this is where you're going to exit through and you know we're going to have a nice loaf of bread um with uh pizza dough it's the same thing you're able to control that fermentation but also because the yeast has a longer time to work on the dough even though it's slowed down and the bacteria in there too you're going to have a lot more sugar breakdown than the starches and you're going to have a better flavor and you're going to have a better color in your dough. Um, if you did a side-by-side -side on like these Neapolitan guys that say, you know, you have to, you know, you shouldn't refrigerate it is because when they started making it, there were probably no refrigerators or they, they, they didn't have the capacity right. to store it. So then it turns into a law, right. <laughs> or a rule. Right. Uh, well, because we did it like this then everybody has to do it like that. But it's more of a circumstantial situation. And so what do they do? Then they have to, you know, in the summer, this was crazy. Like some of these guys, what they were doing is instead of adjusting the amount of yeast, they were adding more salt during the summer. 
Ah. I'm like, but that, why are you doing that? You're changing the flavor of your dough. Adjust the yeast. Don't adjust the salt. Keep the salt the same and change the amount of yeast. Just put less yeast in it in the summer because it's hotter and keep the salt the same because then your pizza is going to be different 365 days of a year. Right. If I go to Sorbillo in, you know, in, in, in the summer, it's going to taste one way. If I go there in the winter, it's going to taste differently because of, of I'm, I'm, a, I'm changing the salt. That makes absolutely no sense to me. So please keep it at 2%. That's the golden rule. If anybody takes anything out of this conversation you and I are having, 2% salt based on the flour, that's the perfect amount of salt to add to any dough, whether it be pizza, sourdough, baguettes, you name it. That is the perfect amount to add. Got and it. the yeast is what you can vary. See, see, if I was an old Italian man in Naples and, and you told mm -hmm. me that, what I would have told you in return to that would be like, people that drink more water in the summer, they need more salt because they drink more water. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the kind of things that like. No. These <laughs> no and, yeah. And you pick your battles, right? I mean, there's, I, I know that there are conversations that, you know, there are arguments you're never going to win. And yeah. facts don't always matter to some people. And that's that's when I, you need to just like step away because it's well, not facts, facts I don't think it's worth sometimes, that. you know what I mean? Facts right. create feelings right. in people. Correct. <laughs> that so, is correct. Yeah, it's very, very correct. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it was recent well, we did an interview, uh I don't know, have you ever heard of Joe Riggio from New York Pizza Suprema? I have heard of him, yes. Yeah. So I've never met him, but I have heard of him. He was telling us, you know, his father started the place in, I think, like 1963 or something. And we were talking about, um, you know, uh, ovens and uh, dough uh, retarders or dough raiders, whatever you call them. Mm -hmm. um, he was saying they didn't get their first one into the pizzeria until 1988. Wow. was their first pizza dough fridge. He was like, there was no fridge. There was no dough fridge right. before that. He was telling right. me that they right. had um, they had a metal table that had these like mm -hmm. kind of slots. And mm -hmm. I almost remembered seeing it somewhere from when I was a kid, but I haven't seen it since. And it was kind of like out of sight, out of mind, like as far as my recollection. Mm -hmm. But when he mentioned it, I was like, oh yeah, I think I worked at a place that had that. Where like, instead of... Um, the instead of the plastic containers or instead of the metal dough pans, what they had mm -hmm. was these metal, um, these metal cases for the dough that were almost they were the same size as the plastic dough trays, but like mm -hmm. they would come where they would slip into these things. So it wasn't a sheet pan; it was a lot deeper, mm -hmm. and they would have these metal uh -huh. tops with like handles. And that's what they uh -huh. would keep the dough in. And then he said, eventually they switched to another thing that I forgot about that existed was if you, uh, and you know, when he was talking, it reminded me when you go to the Bowery to pick up dough containers, you could get mm -hmm. fiberglass or plastic and the fiberglass are about double the size, which was, uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to go back in the, I'm going to go to Richie and ask him like, kind of figure out what mm -hmm. the temperatures between those are. But yeah, there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of misinformation when it comes to like, you know, the old school way of doing things and it's not looked at from, uh, you know, like a point of fact and a point of science really in most cases, but going back and looking at these things, because I mean, wouldn't it make a giant difference in the dough? Um, 
cold fermenting in something that's uh, plastic that isn't going to conduct temperature as well as something that's metal. Mm. You know what I mean? If you stick a dough in a metal container and you stick a dough in a plastic container in the fridge, at the Mm. same temperature fridge, those doughs are going to be at completely different temperatures. At first, because eventually it will reach temperature. I mean, it's not going to keep it at a different temperature forever. Eventually it will, the metal container contents will equalize to the plastic container contents eventually right. uh, but it take it will take it'll take a little bit longer in the plastic one because it's not as conductive as a metal that's well fair. if you touch even if you touch the metal or you touch glass or you touch plastic it's it feels it, it feels. just that it is it, how it feels it's like some people are like you know like grown adults will say the marble is colder in a kitchen than okay. the rest and it's <laughs> Nothing could be more absurd than that because everything in the kitchen is the same temperature. The marble feels colder, right? If you put your hand on the marble mm-hmm. and you put it on a, on a wood table, it's not that the marble is colder than the wood. They're both the same temperatures, just the marble, the ma- that material, it's you're able to feel it with a lot more, I guess, accuracy or intensity than the wood, but they're both the same temperature. You put a thermometer in both of them. This is an easy experiment to do. Put a thermometer in the doughs in a metal container and in a plastic container and just let them sit there for as many hours as you want in the fridge. Eventually, they will both equalize to the same temperature. Right, but but, it's, it's, but if it takes a plastic an extra three hours longer, is it that changing? No, I don't know that it's that long. Okay. I don't, I don't know that it'll be that long, but I, I do know that, like, for example, in the in the realm of things that are a little bit more sanitary to use, plastic is a little bit more recommended uh, As opposed for to that metal. purpose. Yeah. Well, and because not, I mean, if you're talking about stainless steel, it's fine, but a lot of these are aluminum and aluminum sometimes stains your dough. I don't know if you've seen, like sometimes it gets, gives you like gray or black spots in your dough. It's because that, that's just kind of like when how. Yeah. When they're brand new, when you get them brand new from the, um, right from the manufacturer they have like they shed um and what right. you got to do is you got to clean them up and then uh like really good and then you won't mm-hmm. have that but if you yeah if you get one of those dough cans from the manufacturer roll up some dough put it in there the whole bottom of it yeah is just it's it, terrible. It, it, it like looks like aluminum it's crazy and i mean there's probably right. aluminum shards going all, all over the place and aluminum does shed too as well right yeah and that's why it's it's not like it's not a metal that I would use very much for cooking in general. Uh-huh. Like if I use aluminum as a sheet pan, cause that's what we have here. We have aluminum sheet pans, but I always line it with parchment paper or something. I never, I rarely ever, I don't think I ever have put food directly in contact with aluminum. It's like copper a little bit in that regard, which is like some of it does come off. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, copper is good for cooking sugar, right? Because you're going to get super hot, but for actual cooking, like, you know, it's great for whipping egg whites because it's it creates like this alkaline environment, which encourages the foaming in egg whites, but some of it comes into you. And so there could be a little bit of eventually it adds up and it can become toxic. Yeah, copper is like a micronutrient, but in any kind of like, yeah, it becomes toxic to you at a right. certain level. And it, it's, yeah, because it's your body can't get rid of it. And, and that's the thing is it kind of like stays in you. And so most metals might like when they're consuming like those small quantities, eventually it just, it adds up. And so 
I try to stay away from that as much as possible. So I, I, I've seen something recently. Like I just want to touch on this really quick because I'm really curious about it, and you probably know the answer. Uh, I've seen some things recently. They'll be showing like um, how, like in India, they keep uh, their water in copper containers or something like that. Because uh, yeah, is that like a bunch of woo woo? Oh, it's a bunch of bad. It's like putting it in, like keeping it uh, in lead, right? Lead is the worst example of this, actually. But it's an extreme example of like lead poisoning, right? I mean, it's, you can have copper poisoning too. Like any metal that stays in your body is eventually going to poison you because your body can't assimilate it. And yet it stays in your body. So the copper will um, shed into the water even without heat? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, 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 and, and just basically how it transforms the liquids around it uh, just by coming in contact with it, it, it is a toxin for your body for sure. And the thing about toxins is like, it's, it's, you know, if you think of, you know, what a toxin is, it's, it's a poison, right? And, and poison is something that your body can't, first of all, you can't cook it off. You can't apply, you know, heat to get rid of that toxin. It just, it stays in there and it goes into your body. And so that, that is a part of, of, of major concern. So. Right. With aluminum and yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of restaurants are using, um, um, I mean, most restaurants that I grew up cooking and they use, uh, you know, they have a big stack of aluminum, uh, yeah. pans that they're not exposing, great. Exposing <laughs> it's to not really great. High heat. Yeah. 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 Probably yeah. not. Probably yes. not the greatest. Not great. I recently uh, switched to aluminum-free deodorant because I was like, "Wait, deodorant's got aluminum in it." See, that's, right? uh, yeah, that doesn't sound healthy. That doesn't sound like. And that's in your armpits. It's better. Like that's on your armpits. Imagine in your stomach, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah, that that is that is uh, something to just think about. Yeah, bit, it does so. not sound like a good thing um, to do. So, yeah, I, we were just touching on like you were just explaining like, um, you know, 2% is the perfect amount of salt. Um, mm-hmm. What happens? I've heard about people like uh, to, to adding salt into their starters to kind of like limit some bacterium thing. Have you uh, heard anything about that? Or what are your so? Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's. You you add salts to a sourdough starter. It's the main reason you would do it. The re, like if you're thinking about why I'm adding salt, the answer should be so so that I slow down fermentation. Okay. Um, not for you know it's you you know what you explained that you know they wanted to keep some other bacteria out. I mean, salts just slows it down. It doesn't. Does I mean I mean if you add too much, you're going to kill everything. Of course, even the yeah. good stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but it's very important to understand that the, the, the microorganisms that are in there are dominant. And if there's any, anything, any bad strain coming in there or anything foreign, they're going to work together to get rid of it. And that's, you know, basically that's what the alcohol is. And, uh, you know, the, the, the acid that is secreted, that's what these microorganisms are doing while they're fermenting is they're creating hostile environments for other microorganisms so that nobody else can come into the party. That, that, you know, if you think of like, well, why is it, why does it smell like alcohol? Why does this taste so acidic? Mm. Those are basically countermeasures to get rid of anything that might come in. So it's, and that's why yeast and uh, bacteria, lactic acid bacteria and acidic acid bacteria can coexist because what they secrete, it's, it doesn't affect it. So like whatever the yeast is secreting, the lactic acid bacteria doesn't mind. 
it can live with it. And whatever the lactic acid bacteria is secreting, the yeast can live with. So it's a very symbiotic environment that they have. Is is there such thing I, I, I hear a lot, um, you know, when I'm talking to like different Italian guys about bread and pizza and this and that, a big thing that's going around is, um, you know, it says that, you know, doing longer fermentations makes um, um, the dough, you know, kind of more digestible um, for your body. And they'll say things like, um, you know, uh, it's breaking down the glutens. Like if you have like a really fast ferment, like it, I, I think the basic gist of what people are saying is um, in these communities is if you have like, if you throw like a ton of yeast into a dough and it rises in like two hours and then you punch it down and shape it and you're making it an hour later. Um, I mean, it's not, the glutens not breaking down or something like that. Is there any truth to that or mm -hmm. if they're, yeah. Well, the thing about digestibility is it's a very interesting uh, conversation, mostly because it's not something that started being part of the conversation until about 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Um, and it, it, it really related directly to the world of pizza. And we've been trying to find out why it was so connected to the world of pizza, because you hear a lot of people talking about digestibility, right? Like, you know, this pizza, I eat it in one hour, I'm hungry again. It's very hard to measure digestibility. There is apparently a university in Sweden that developed a machine that can measure digestibility. It's, it basically, it replicates the digestive system. It's a very complex machine. But other than that, what you have is somebody's personal opinion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we wanted to find out is like, why are people talking about digestibility when it comes to pizza, but nothing else? especially in Italy, right? So we talk about digestibility, but about pizza, but not about pasta. Right. Why, like, why, why is pizza taking the hit for digestibility versus, I mean, have you had a whole plate of pasta? Do you feel light and airy after you eat a whole pasta bolognese? I mean, um, yeah. I mean I, I, no, no, no. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I, I do I do have very, uh, I, I have a different feeling from, like, if I eat, like, a, a, you know, a pasta made with good eggs. I mean, it could be in my head as opposed to, like, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, cooking up some barilla. And, you know, the product that I get from, like, a to-go um, slice mm -hmm. joint and the product that I get when I sit down at, like, a nice restaurant, I mean, is... I feel completely differently. I don't know why, but I mean, there, there be could be many of, factors. It could be that many that. factors. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. But, but it is, again, it's, it's a matter of, of, of how you personally feel about it. So then how do you measure it? Mm -hmm. Like, how can you say my dough is more digestible than this guy's dough? Like, how do you know? Right. Like that, that, that is, there's a lot of questions around that. Um, there's not a lot of answers because a lot of it is such a personal thing. It's like, it's how do you measure whether something tastes good or not? Sure. Well, if I like it, it's good for me, but you, Nino, might really hate it. I don't right. know, right? And how I metabolize food is very different from how you metabolize food. And when I say metabolize, is how your body assimilates everything you ate and what it does with it and how quickly it does it. So you know how some people can drink all night and the next day they're fine? Yeah. Um, and you know, some people will have a beer and they have a headache and they feel drunk and they're just like for hours. Right. Sure. That has, that has a lot to do with how you metabolize food. And so the same could go for pizza. I mean, sure. I get, if you get like a Chuck E. Cheese pizza, 
that you're not going to feel very good for it. But there's probably a number of reasons there. First of all, you're at some kid's birthday party you don't want to be at. Um, <laughs> right. Second, it's it's likely terrible pizza. I mean, it in and of itself. And then if I go and I have one of your pizzas, I'm going to be like, well, this is awesome because you put care into the ingredients, you made it there. And so I've, I've sort of like convinced myself that I'm going to feel better after I eat this particular pizza. Okay. So again, there is no black or white with this whole digestibility. And that's why it's so open to like, yes, like this guy says it, well, I must believe him. Okay. But we, I mean, why weren't we talking about this, you know, uh, you know, 40 years ago, why, why, how did it all of a sudden become part of the conversation is a, to me is a mystery. And I, I'd love to learn how this all got started because every single person we spoke to in Italy, pizzaiolo, every single one of them brought up digestibility. Yeah. I mean, to the point where it's just like absurd, like, okay, can we just focus on whether it's good or not? <laughs> you know, that's, and then, cause we were eating 15, 16, 18, 20 pizzas a day. So that's not going to be very digestible, no matter how light the pizza is, right? So, right. Um, uh, that's that. Is, that is, it's a, it's a one of those like mysteries around pizza that you know a lot of people are are loving having the conversation about it. Um, very hard to measure them. So during the um, like like, but during the fermentation process, like if you like when you first mix a dough together, um. Mm -hmm. Uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. Um, when you first mix a dough together, right? It's like the, you know, the gluten structures or whatever, you know what I mean? It's tight. And if you leave a mm -hmm. dough overnight, you know, you see them pulling it open. Um, is there nothing mm -hmm. happened with the yeast and bacterium that are kind of breaking down that gluten? Oh yeah. I mean, well, they're breaking down starches. The gluten okay. shouldn't break. If you're, if the gluten is breaking down, you're going to have a wet mess that you can't stretch. Um, the gluten actually is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It's if you, it's, if you've ever heard of the no need mixing method, the, right. the one that was made, you know, famous by Jim Leahy, Sir. um, it's mixing water, flour, salts, and yeast just to, you have a cohesive mass. You let it sit for 18 hours. The next day you have a dough that's ready to bake. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's because once the gluten and gliadin, which are the proteins in flour that are responsible for forming gluten, once they are hydrated, they start forming gluten bonds and then chains that are long, long, long. And the more time that you can't stop that process yeast has at this point, what they're doing is they're focusing on the starch part and they're focusing on breaking down the starches into making them into sugar, simple sugar so that they can consume them and eat. Uh, but gluten is, you know, it's getting stronger and that's, that is, it's not, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the more time that goes by, the stronger your dough gets. That's a, it's an easier way to, to explain it and understand it. Right. Right. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. so what, uh, um, like, yeah, what, if I want to make like, have you ever had like a really dope, um italian hero like with the sesame seeds yeah. on it and you yeah, know yeah, what I'm saying? yeah. Mm -hmm. like how would you go about doing that if i was like Fra francisco i want you to make me the greatest italian hero in the world what would be like the basic hydration and stuff <laughs> like that behind that uh you know when i think of that type of bread i don't go i don't think it would be very high in hydration right yeah. i mean this is bread that that should like if i put a vinaigrette on it and you know if i drizzle some vinaigrette and if i put you know, whatever condiments I want to put on it, it's a little bit like 
a tiny bit like a sponge, right? It should absorb it a little bit, but not get soaping, sopping wet. So sure. for me, I think 65, mm-hmm. 68 hydration 68 is pretty tops, good. Probably, right? Yeah. That would be the high Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I would do is like, you know, those sesame seeds, um, you know, if I was really, if like, if you have the time for it, I think that, you know, part of what happens with these, with the toppings on bagels and, you know, toppings on any bread is that most of the time they fall off uh-huh. um, or a lot of it falls off. Uh, we, we have a method in which we basically apply the toppings after the bake. Uh, really? So we, we, yeah. So we make like a slurry uh, with a, it's a modified tapioca starch uh, and a little bit of water. So it's like the glue almost that we brush onto the dough. Then we cover it in the topping or the bagel. It's completely covered in the topping. Goes in the oven for five minutes with the vent open. And that topping just stays on it. And what I really like about that is that, you know, if you think of a bagel, it just has the topping on top, hence the name. But our bagels have toppings everywhere. So it's surrounded by a topping. So if I cut a bagel and have to put salmon in it, it's it's got the, the everything topping or whatever I put on it everywhere. Uh, if I have a, a, you know, a hoagie loaf with sesame seeds, I have sesame seeds everywhere and they stay on. And so that adds to the, to me, it adds to a positive experience of having a really nice uh, loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. It's overkill. Is, I mean, I know, is, I know production wise, the, it might not make sense, but. Is that in the book? Is that in modernist bread? Oh yeah. Go to the bagel. And that's where all the instructions are. Yeah. And Martin, so. Uh, it's also available somewhere online. If your listeners wanted the, like the, the method and the recipe, it's, the, it's, it's just modernist bread bagels. Um, right. and we, we provide all the information for what type of, uh, modified starch are supposed to use and, you know, how much water and how to do it. Basically. I think it just makes a much better bagel. Like if I think of, you think of an everything bagel and how the onion and garlic always taste burnt. Uh, and it's this disgusting, acrid taste because they've, they're burnt. When you do that, when you bake the bagel from the beginning with that topping, the onion and garlic are always going to burn. So if you bake your bagel naked and then you put the stop, the slurry and then the everything topping on five minutes in the oven, you the top, the everything topping is delicious. It's slightly toasted, but it's not burnt and it's everywhere. So I think that that makes for a superior bagel. Personally. Awesome. I want to switch up really quick because uh, this is something I've been looking at recently, and I think there's a lot of um, you know weird lore and like misinformation behind this too. But um, as it applies to like ovens, um, so there's this. So basically, in my mind, you know, especially in the tri-state area, like a lot of guys are complaining about you know um, labor costs a lot more than it ever has, and and rents keep going up, and it's like, how do we stay in business and you know, my mm-hmm. kind of answer to that is like, people are going to have to adapt. They're going to have to evolve. And I've right. seen that happen a lot in, you know, other mm-hmm. industries. You look at Keith McNally's places and you know what I'm saying? They started to open mm-hmm. up really early instead of just doing a dinner mm-hmm. service, you know, and that was right. years and years ago. They kind of adapted. It's like, okay, we're paying 40,000 a month rent. We're going to figure something out in order to pay this. And right. when I look at pizzerias, um, it's, it's, you know, I think one of the big adaptions that can be done um, is to, you know, add some type of bread program to that. Um, mm-hmm. where you can sell some retail breads. I mean, right now in the city, 
Um, you got, you know, small uh, batards going for, you know, between 8 and $12 and there's no cheese on it, which mm -hmm. is like 80% of our cost. One of the biggest problems is is a lot of people and, you know, I haven't really gotten down this rabbit hole. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I'm sure if I was like, you know, Francisco, you were my partner out here. You're so knowledgeable that you're like, I can figure this out. But a lot of places are dealing with, um, you know, either Italian electric ovens or most of them have uh, these uh, Marcella Baker Pride um, mm -hmm. deck ovens that, um, you know, it's not like a steam injected bakery oven. Now, mm -hmm. when you ask people in the pizza world, like, why don't you just get a bread oven? Their answer is, uh, oh, because they're different. Um, you know, they, they have different heat. It's slower and this and that. I recently went out to a couple of companies because I was just like, fuck it. Let me go stress test these things. And I thought mm -hmm. there would be like some type of dampener over the elements on the electric or something different. Mm -hmm. Um it turns out the their gas models, I mean, the company that I went to, their gas models are exactly the same as my Vero Forno. The parts come from the same part in Italy. It works exactly the same, right. except it has steam injection. And, I mean, I can't see a difference between the electric things, but there's this big misconception mm. about it. Um, do you, have you run into anything like that? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, we did a lot of tests on a bunch of different ovens. Like, yeah. we tested almost every oven known to man. Um and the the short answer is that there the biggest difference that you're going to find between like the newer pizza ovens and like a bread oven i mean the main one is that you don't have steam injection right which right. is you know that 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 adds to the cost and so it's 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 easier to rationalize well i can't get that oven because it's it's it won't be the same but also it's more expensive um but they function exactly the same way. You get radiant heat from a hot oven floor, and then you get radiant heat from the top. The biggest difference you can have is like the newer, like pizza specific Italian ovens, the electric ones, they have a shorter, like the distance from the top and the bottom is right. like you have less space, right? right? Where in a bread oven, you have like, it's like 18 inches, um, you know, between the top and the bottom. But, uh, you know, if you get an oven that, you know, is either gas, they have these uh, bread ovens that have like uh, basically coils that oil, hot oil runs through the coils. Yeah. Um, those are really good. That's I mean, those recover really works. quickly. So in two of my locations, right. my Veriforno oven, that's mm -hmm. exactly how it works. And mm -hmm. obviously it's a bread oven that was marketed as a pizza oven, which I believe is the same thing for Moretti 40 and for pizza master and all those other ones. Right. I mean, a lot of these pizza ovens like Capone's are like you said, they're shorter, but if you look at, um, mm -hmm. pizza master, if you look at Moretti 40, if you look at a lot of these other Italian ovens marketed in the U S mm -hmm. pizza ovens, they are taller because if you go to mm -hmm. Europe, they're, they're bread ovens. Um, but what, what, like, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm really, so here's the most, the most important thing to understand about how baking works. Uh -huh. And that we have a whole section in our pizza book about how, you know, how does a pizza actually cook? Right. And the, the and basically all of the cooking occurs. This sounds kind of crazy, but it's, believe me, it's, it's not so much about where the heat radiates from but it's, it's the type of light that it's, that the heat is emitting. Um, so if I, it's not like, if I think of a, you know, like a wood fired oven, or if I think of like a gas oven, uh, or, you know, it, it's, it's basically infrared light 
that is cooking the pizza because it's not the it's not like if I put a candle or a torch to a pizza, it's going to burn it, right? Mm-hmm. But if if I have like ten torches and they're like at a certain distance from the pizza and an enclosed environment, it's the light, the infrared light that this heat is producing that is cooking the pizza. This is a very long conversation. I don't want to right, get right, into right, this right, rabbit right. hole right now. <laughs> uh, but but there, it's it's a it's very important to understand that it's it's not the thing itself that is radiating heat. It's the light that it's emitting. That is, it's light that you you and I can't see. Right. So when we think about light, don't think about like I turn on a, a light bulb and you see the light. It's different electrical waves that are basically cooking the pizza. So it's it's more about how that that light is being, you know, basically radiated onto the pizza than where the heat is coming from. So it, it that it's again, it, that's a whole com- we should probably talk about this again at yeah, another yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, but, but you need to think more about about the light. So uh, than the actual like flame itself. So. Right. Right. Got it. So. um what uh one more thing i know we gotta go soon i just wanted to i wanted to ask you this um so like when i because i know it's a big question that a lot of people have um um especially in these facebook baking communities and pizza communities and this mm-hmm. and that um you know a lot of people especially because of covid they were um uh learned how to do like sourdough baking and learned and got really into bread and all this stuff and i see a lot of them on there um and i i've had trouble finding information on it where they they they're making this amazing product in these cast iron dutch ovens and then they're trying to switch mm-hmm. that not to a residential oven but to like a bread oven and they're they're there's i I mean, I'm sure they have for me, there's a lot of information in modernist bread, but I've had a lot of trouble finding, not looking there, but just looking on the internet recently um, for like methods. And I've seen people do some strange things like changing the temperature midway through the cook, which is very strange nah. to me because like, how do you unload and load bread? But like, if you're making like a kind of like a tartine bread, like 75% starter thing, um, what are your experiences in like deck ovens and like combi ovens for like temperatures and times with that kind of stuff? Well, I, I what I would say like for a home oven, you know, the forget most the important thing. You, yeah. Oh, forget they, the home oven. They got the home oven uh-huh. figured out. The home right. oven isn't the problem. Uh, it's when they try to switch from the home oven using either like uh-huh. a, a ba- uh, using a Dutch oven into like you know a commercial oven like. Um, uh, 475 degrees Fahrenheit is like the sweet spot for baking pretty much any sourdough bread, especially not especially, but like, even if it's like high hydration, the number that I really like for, for baking those breads is 475 degrees. It takes about 50 to 60 minutes to bake like a two pound loaf mm-hmm. of bread. Um, the venting part is important, especially for high hydration breads, meaning opening the damper because you want to form a crust that is going to be crisp. Right. right. The wetter the dough is, the 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 more you want to work on getting that crispy crust on the outside. Right. I would never do that with pizza. Right. But with bread, you want to have uh, you want to have a crust. You want to have something that you can cut into and it's going to hold its shape. Think of the crust as the skeleton. It's like an exoskeleton. Right. It's if the crust is set, it's going to maintain everything inside. If the crust is soggy and it collapses, it's going to lose that that crumb on the inside. So we want to form and set a nice crust on the outside. And a lot, a lot of that is accomplished by, by the final venting time. So 475, about an hour, uh, with the last 10 minutes, 15 with the vent open. 
So you're saying, oh, so the vent isn't open until, you know, the pa- the last 10 or so minutes of the yeah. process. And then, like, yeah. when it comes to, like, steam injection, I notice a lot of these ovens are, like, um, you know, some of them will do it by, like, milliliters. Some of them will do it by seconds. Um, I know the yeah. combi ovens is a whole different thing. But are you saying that it would be, like, the same between, like, a deck oven and a combi and, like, an electric? <laughs> or does it change slightly? The challenge... The challenge with the steam is that, you know, a lot of the ovens, it just has a steam button. And so then you have bakers writing recipes that say, press the steam button for two seconds. But what does that even mean? Right. Like what, what is, what is two seconds from this brand to that brand? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it, it, it makes no sense, but uh, we have a German oven here, a uh, German deck oven. The, the brand is Mive, M-I-W-E. Um, oh, yeah, and it's yeah. really cool because th- with the, these ovens, I can um, program it to how many milliliters of water to right. inject in. Um, and so for, for us, what has worked best is 200 milliliters, which if you look at it in a measuring cup, 200 milliliters is like that much. But when it's steam, it expands and it fills the deck completely. And because it's all enclosed, it stays trapped in there nice and long. Uh, until eventually it, it evaporates. But that initial steam um, is important. It, it's really important because it's creating this wet environment and heat conducts better through water than air, mm. right? Before before you applied steam, all you had was hot air. And the air is the worst conductor of heat. But once we apply steam, what we're doing is we're encasing everything in water. And then the heat is basically traveling through that water and it's coming in contact with the crust of your bread. So the surface of my dough gets hot and then that heat slowly starts to get to the core of my bread. Okay. So it's, it's that initial steaming is important for, you know, getting things hot as quickly as possible. I wouldn't have even thought of it like that. Um, I mean, now it makes perfect sense, but I would have thought of it as like, it was getting colder. So like, if you were to do like too much steam, like 400 milliliters, would that make it like, like too hot for the dough or what kind of effects would that have? No, it's interesting. It, there isn't like an increase in volume or a slowdown in temperature. What it does is it makes a very shiny loaf of bread. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't mess it, with it, like it, the, you know, kind of really. on it all and this and that. That's no, all. we we did a lot of tests with that as far as like baking with zero steam and then, you know, 100 milliliters, 200 and so far until like the highest we could go with the oven. And the only change, like the one with no steam was dull. You know, it was, the volume was fine. The crumb was fine. It was completely dull. Um, and the one that had the, the most amount of water was like shiny, like almost like we had put a wash on top of it. Really? So, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, and yes, the, the ones that, the more water it had, the faster it baked, but this was only because we were giving it more conduction. Okay. So, so yeah, because one of the things that I've seen on these, on these, uh, on these websites a lot, cause I'm always on these Facebook groups of like artisanal bread bakers and sourdough bread bakers and this and that mm-hmm. is they'll like, they'll do a loaf in the Dutch oven and then they'll do a loaf, um, in one of these other ovens and they'll almost like, it won't, it, it, it looks like they're, maybe they're doing it too hot or something like that is probably the case mm-hmm. because it almost like bubbles up, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it doesn't, it just has like a line where like the kind of ear and everything was mm-hmm. supposed to be. And it's like kind of more of a round shape. And then you see the loaf that they mm-hmm. did on the Dutch oven and it's like, you know, beautiful and shiny and, right. you know, nice. Right. It's probably just like too high temperature or something like that. It's what they're doing. 
Yeah. And it's different animals. I mean, I think that it's, you know, once you, you bake in a home oven and then you go into a, like a big boy deck oven, it's, you know, some of the principles are similar, but even how you handle it. And like, if you have a full, if you have a deck and you're only putting one loaf in there, it's not ideal. You want, like, I would always recommend if you can fill the deck with dough, if the dough bakes, the bread bakes better when the, when it's full than if there's only one loaf, right. if there's only one, all of that heat is like focusing on this one poor little piece of dough. So it's not ideal. I think, you know, it's, it's going to be an important consideration. Whoever's thinking of, you know, moving up, always fill your deck with dough as much as you possibly can. I, 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 that makes a ton of sense. And we're definitely going to clip this out and put this on all these guys. But, um, Francisco, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for the time. It means so much to me. And I know it's going to mean no, so it was much great. to our community. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll do this again soon. I really want to talk about pizza with you guys. Um, yeah. If you guys didn't hear us say it a bunch of times, Modernist Pizza is coming soon. Um, and it's going to be a trip. I know it's going to be a must have for all the uh, pizza guys out there in the community and all the pizza nuts. Um, but uh, I really wanted to stress to everybody how important of a book Modernist Bread is as well, because I think that is, you know, bread making is going to be the revolution in our pizza business. And I, you know, vice versa, you know, I see a lot of bakeries adding stuff, but um, yo, you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, we'll see you soon, brother. Hey, it was great speaking with you. And uh, really, thanks for, for letting me be on. I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks, brother. We'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Ciao. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Oh, yeah.